Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is dedicated to Broadway legend Alvin Ng, who, after this episode was recorded, passed away due to complications with COVID. As an actor and singer, Alvin was not only featured in the original and revival productions of Pacific Overtures, he performed in more productions of Flower Drum Song than just about anyone, including the role of Chin in the revival we'll be discussing today. Special thanks to his castmates of that production, Jose Lana, Tele Leong, Sally Hong, J. Elaine Marcos, and of course, Daniel May, for making this episode a special tribute to his pioneering contributions to musical theater. So early on in the podcast, I did an episode all about South Pacific. Mm. And in said episode, which I highly recommend all the listeners listen to if they haven't already, I introduced the parable of the black ketchup bottle. Uh, Basically, my great-grandma is famous for having a basement full of, like, expired food. (laughs) (laughs) She came from a Depression-era type culture. And so uh, I would hear these stories from my mom and dad that they would go down into the basement and be like, Grandma, maybe it's time to throw out some of these black ketchup bottles <laughs> and she's like no it's fine it's good and the point in bringing up the black ketchup bottle was you know when we go back and visit some of these old musicals particularly in the Rodgers and Hammerstein era are there musicals that just probably need to be thrown out mm. it's a legitimate question right they served a purpose when they were done originally And so maybe it's time to buy some new ketchup. (laughs) And what I think we discovered about South Pacific is that it isn't a black ketchup bottle. It's actually pretty profound and full of incredible theater. Very much, yeah. And the thing about Flower Drum Song is that I think when people looked back on it, they did realize it was kind of a black ketchup bottle. Mm. And yet... It was a revolutionary black ketchup bottle. Mm. So it was time to dump out some of that stuff and refill it with some good stuff. Yes. And that's why I'm really excited to talk about this show. Yay. Me too. (laughs) 
Welcome, everybody, to a musical theater podcast where we discuss the cultural and emotional impact of some of our favorite musicals in theater history. My name is Jeffrey Scott Parsons. You can call me Jeff. Today, we are talking about Flower Drum Song, which was a listener request from Donnie. Thank you, Donnie, for requesting this. He said that uh, there were a lot of Instagram clips going around of Leia Salonga singing Love Look Away. Mm. And he's like, I know nothing about this musical, but it's incredible. I want to know more about it. So he requested it. We're covering it. And to discuss it with me is the amazing Daniel May. Hi. Thanks, Jeffrey. Daniel, I'm so grateful you're here. You are an original cast member of the Broadway revival in 2002. Yes. Can you talk to me about that experience real quick? Because I know it was a short one, but how long were you with the show? Um, well, it's interesting. I was working in Japan at Universal Studios um, Osaka. We had just opened the park over there. When no, wait, what show were you doing? I did Beetlejuice's Monster Fest. I was one of the Wolfies. Stop it. Yes. With Classic. With Barbara Epstein and John Cavanaugh and Ray Garcia, all those guys. Um, How cool. Yeah, it was, it was awesome. This was 2001, right? And I saw that they were doing a revival of Flower Drum Song at the Mark Taper Forum at the with Center Theater Group in LA. And I was like, oh, why am I in Osaka? <laughs> I need to be in LA doing this production with Leia Salonga, who, you know, has always yeah, just been a, a hero, hero idol of mine. And so, you know what's so funny, Jeffrey, is I'm cleaning out my parents' garage pandemic ac- activities, right? 100% same. Yes. And I just <laughs> found the printout of the original call that I went to for Flower Drum Song, which was oh, an open call in New York. With the link for MapQuest directions. With the MapQuest <laughs> which I didn't even clock that. Um, That's awesome. Yeah. So, you know, I saw this open call and I was like, you know what, I'm just going to fly in. I'm, I'm in LA. And I was like, I'm just going to fly to New York and audition for this thing. And that was in, let's see, it says April 18th of 2002. And then the ball just started to roll really fast. I got called back. I flew back about a month later for final callbacks and and was cast. And then I, I didn't even have my equity card at this point. I just also booked Sacramento Music Circus doing Seven Brides, which gave me my equity card. And then after that, I flew to New York and we started rehearsals in August of 02. Come on, Daniel. So, Way to book. That's hey, awesome. It was a good it was a good three months. <laughs> <laughs> please return that energy. <laughs> right? Please. <Yeah. laughs> now it was a cast full of talent. Holy cow. Mm. Not just like Broadway legends and, and resumes, but people who have also gone on, like yourself, to have really wonderful careers. Yeah. J. Elaine Marcos, who is most recently on our Chorus Line episode, was in the cast. And then, of course, Leia Salonga, Alvining, all of these amazing people. I know that you've told me that it's still a close-knit family. Very much so, yes. Because that's been, what, 20 years almost? Yeah, it's almost almost 20 years, which is just mind-boggling in itself. Um, But yeah, we're so close. I mean, we've all been texting recently on a group text because uh, one one of our Cast members Alvin Ning unfortunately fell sick with um, COVID again after being fully vaccinated and um, is doing is doing a lot better. But we've just That's all amazing. been texting and you know and, and giving him love and 
Um, but we, yeah, we've stayed close through the years and it's, that was the real gift of that production, you know, was the family that we formed, you know. Because not all shows are like that. Yes, sure. we do get close and it's a really wonderful experience, but in sometimes kind of a Buddhist way, you just have to let it go and be, let the thing be the thing. But totally. this one kept on. Why do you think that is? You know, I think it was just one of those um, wonderful timing, right people, right place, right time things that happened. You know, I think it's a mm. brill. I, I think that actually is one of the brilliances of casting is when you really find the people with that same energy, that same sort of love and intention about life. It it creates that connection, you know. And for me personally, you know, I I'm I'm Korean. I was born in in Seoul, but I was adopted to California. Grew up in a Caucasian family. So for me, you know, as a very young 20 year old, being in this all Asian American cast, which I don't know, I think this is true, but I've I heard the fact that that our cast was the first fully Asian cast on Broadway. There mm. had been other casts, you know, of King and I and, and other shows that were majority, but there were a couple, you know, non Asian cast members in the cast. Um, mm -hmm. But again, for me, for me personally, just being in this group of people was just such an amazing, personal, powerful experience, because I never had had that before, you know, they are the most lovely, giving, generous, you know, artists and human beings. So, you know, I, I can't imagine us not wanting to stay connected, you know, that's really incredible. Yeah. I want to send my best wishes to Alvin. I hope he gets better real soon. Yes. Uh, I'm also kind of grateful because you and I were talking about like, n at, at this point, you get like a sinus infection. You're like, oh, shoot, should I go check out uh, and, and get tested? And you said that you were going to and yep. inspired me to go get tested because I had had this like sinus stuff. Yeah. And I assumed it was from the wildfires. I got my test back yesterday and I have COVID. Oh my gosh, Jeffrey. Insane. Wow. So I, and I thought, oh, I'm kind of congested and I don't mm. feel great. But I also wanted to like still record this today because if COVID is really going to be part of our realities and, um, and it's not just going to go away, even though we're completely vaccinated, I still feel so grateful that I am vaccinated because at least it means that I won't die from it, knock on wood. Yeah. And... Um, it means that I am less likely to pass it on to others. Yes. So I, this is my little plug for all of my, all of the listeners out there who may have the ability to make us a little more vaccinated, a little more unified. Uh, let's use our family building skills that we learn in musical theater to, mm. to unify around that. Yeah. Cause I yes. think we'll all be stronger for it. Um, anyway, my goodness, sorry, tangent. Uh, no, not at all. It's important. And it I, is. I'm, you know, I encourage everyone to to get tested and get vaccinated because it's important <clears throat> absolutely yeah. but we're here to talk about flower drum song yes <laughs> um <laughs> now did you know this show before doing it you know i only knew it sort of peripherally um i think my we, we'd watched it as a kid you know my dad loves musicals like my dad Aww, was my musical job, theater dad. and yeah dad dad did good so I know <laughs> that we watched it when I was younger but I really did I did not know the show like internally or really well so our production really was my my first real relationship with it 
That's amazing. I think yeah. it's the I think it's probably the same for a lot of people. It's a, a blind spot in my knowledge of Rogers and Hammerstein. Yeah. And I'm grateful for this episode because it really gave me the opportunity to get to know it better. Yeah. There is a quote by Albert Einstein and uh, he said there are two ways to live your life one is as though nothing is a miracle the other is as though everything is a miracle mm. it's such a beautiful quote and I know that Oscar Hammerstein was a big believer in that sort of thinking because whenever I hear the score to Flower Drum Song I'm reminded of that quote mm. yeah yeah everything is a miracle and so much of the creation of this show is miraculous. Now, of course, Rodgers and Hammerstein at this point were titans of musical theater, mm. in particular Broadway. And, you know, I've I've thought recently about how there's a little, at least on social media, sometimes you see a little Lin-Manuel fatigue. Mm. Yeah, he's great, but is he that great? Mm. And that is only after writing, essentially, In the Heights and, and Hamilton. At this point, when... Rajan and Hammerstein are writing Flower Drum Song. They've had Oklahoma, Carousel, King and I, South Pacific, wow. right? Just yeah. an insane amount of classic works. And so nobody is giving them any breaks whatsoever. Their last show on Broadway was Pipe Dream, which was a big disaster and is actually a really fascinating show, and I'd love to do an episode about it someday. Mm, I've never uh, heard that. They did have a success in the TV... Cinderella with Julie Andrews. We also did an episode on that one, folks. It's great. Anyway, this took a huge, huge toll. All of this pressure, all of this uh, expectation, and all of the success took a huge toll on uh, Rodgers and Hammerstein, particularly Richard Rodgers, who began drinking very heavily, had big-time depression issues, and ultimately had to be checked into rehab. Mm. I'm going to be talking a lot from this book called Something Wonderful by Todd S. Purdom. Mm. And it has a lot of great stuff. But one of the things that he included in his book was a note that Rogers received while he was in rehab. The guy, Clifton Fadiman, I believe is how you say it. He was like a writer, editor, radio, television host. He writes to Richard Rogers. You may have noticed that longshoremen don't suffer from depression. I mean, they probably do, but mm. they suffer from discouragement or frustration or bafflement, but not from the vague constellation of downbeat feelings, sometimes oddly known as a nervous breakdown. The fact is, the trouble often follows a triumph or a succession of great successes, which seems paradoxical, doesn't it? For the genius, the challenge is different. Mm. I include that because... I'm reminded of two things. Number one, that before Richard Rodgers was writing with Oscar Hammerstein, he was writing with, do you know? I don't. <laughs> All good. Lorenz Hart, mm. right? Rodgers and Hart were ha happened before Rodgers and Hammerstein. Oh, yes. Okay. And Rodgers and Hart wrote like My Funny Valentine, Babes in Arms, like so many uh, American standards. Oh, yes. Larry Hart was a closet homosexual, had really, really terrible drinking problem and made Richard Rogers life a living hell. Mm. It's very well documented. He was a really tortured guy, incredibly wow. talented and like a genius, mm. but also uh, really, really difficult. And so the fact that Richard Rogers lived through that relationship mm. and still turned to the bottle 
to solve his feelings about success. Yeah. Really brings to my mind kind of where he was at mm. this point in time. Mm. So interesting. You know what I mean? Oh my gosh, Jeffrey. I mean, I just, I so relate. I, I mean, I hope it's okay to share in here, but I, I, of course. I am, I'm in recovery, you know? And so right. to um, hear that congratulations. about, oh, thank you. You know, um, to hear that about him is, is really, I don't know. It's in a strange way, special and, and, you know, heartbreaking. And, and I, I, I understand it. Cause I think we all feel that as artists, I know I do that pressure, no matter what the show is after it ends, there is that, there is that sort of drop that happens, you know? Mm-hmm. And, um, I think for me, that's been a big takeaway of this, this past year of mm-hmm. hopefully the work that I'm doing that we're all doing is trying to find a way to still do this and create and take care of ourselves, you know? Um, yeah. I think of, as you were reading, I was thinking of Simone Biles who just pulled out of the, the, um, the competition today because she has, is dealing with mental health stuff. And I love that. I love that she's doing that, I, you know, for herself. And what an example of taking care of yourself, you know? That, that's just pressure that one person should not have to hold, you know? Yeah. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, or, and if you do hold it, you're kind of alone in it because who else knows what S- Simone Biles is going through right now? Nobody, because nobody can do what she does. Hold, yes. Which against to what you were saying, what, what that letter said, you know, the right. genius deals with something different. And I believe that, you know, I, I, I heard Simone Biles is 24 years old, you know, <laughs> on top of it all. Like, so yes, I mean, I definitely have dealt with my demons and am really trying to take care of myself. You know, I, it's interesting. You know, I got a side job at, at a restaurant recently, and then I got um, a call about an interview at a different place. And you know, my first reaction is sort of this like, yes, always yes reaction. Of course. You know, like I'm going to take the job. I'm going to go to the interview. I'm not going to think about it, which is what I did. I said, you know what? Yes, I will be there. But I really thought about it. I'm like, Daniel, you use these couple days off to do self tapes, to, uh, you know, re-energize, to, you know, take care of yourself. Like, so I called back and I said, you know what? Right now my scheduling really is not uh, available for that. And, And he was like, thank you so much for telling me that not wasting my time you know yeah and but that's, that's new awesome. that's a new thing you know I, i'm used to just sort of grinding myself into the ground until there's nothing left and i don't think we have to do that anymore thank you that's yeah. that is a reminder i need daily so thank you <laughs> me for too that. <laughs> yeah, of course <laughs> <laughs> productivity is not my worth productivity mm, is not my worth <laughs> <clears throat> so richard rogers is in rehab while mm. he is in rehab Oscar Hammerstein is on set for the film version of South Pacific. Mm. And he's in Hollywood, you know, going to set. He meets in the commissary, which is like, you know, the little lunch area in the studio with Joseph Fields, who wrote uh, Gentleman Prefer Blondes. He helped with the script for that, uh, among other things. And they're friends and they're talking about what's next, etc. And... Joe Fields mentions that he thinks C.Y. Lee's novel, The Flower Drum Song, would make a great musical. And so Oscar Hammerstein reads it, he agrees, and they essentially decide, hey, Richard Rogers, we're going to write this musical. And, mm. and so Richard Rogers gets out of rehab and agrees, and they all set down this avenue 
California, USA, <laughs> to uh, to write flower drum song. Now, these guys are not stupid, but they are also innovators of the art form, maybe even the greatest innovators of the art form. So they pick flower drum song fully intending to make it into a romantic musical comedy. Mm. From the get-go, that's what it is meant to be. But as innovators, they can't help to also be a little revolutionary. And the revolution that they choose to include is the fact that this is going to be an all-Asian musical. There are no characters for white people. Yeah, amazing. And from the get-go, they have the intent to cast it authentically. Mm. Did you read the book or anything like that? I have not read the book. Okay, I'm, neither I'm, have I. Bad. <laughs> but no, I'm great, you know, I Jeffrey, I'm, gr- I'm grateful for doing this because uh, honestly, when you asked me and then you sent me the thing of like what we're going to, I was like, oh my gosh, where's my cliff notes? And, <laughs> um, but I'm grateful because I'm like, Daniel, why have you not read that book? I need to read that book. So this that is my homework from doing this is to read to read the source I honestly, material of this. That would be amazing because I Seriously. don't think I will. Yeah. But if you can, no, I, yeah. by all means, let me know. Yeah. I know the Flower Drum Song is considered a classic in terms of Chinese-American literature. Mm. It deals with assimilation. And in fact, l- let me give you a little Cliff Notes version of this story and tell me what musical it reminds you of. Okay? Okay. There's a father... He's very traditional in how he views his culture and beliefs. He has a child who is constantly forcing him to relook at those traditions to see if they need to change and as the world is changing, mm. uh, especially in terms of falling in love. Does that mm. sound like any musical, famous musical out oh. there? Oh, yes. Of course, Fiddler. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes. right? Yeah. So... Flower Drum Song, the novel, actually reads a lot like Fiddler on the Roof would. Mm. Now, you may say, oh, so Rodgers and Hammerstein were just ripping off Fiddler on the Roof. No, because Flower Drum Song was first. Oh, wow. Fiddler on the Roof didn't come out until like five or six years later. Mm. So it's 1957. They know that they have this story, like I said, of of immigration, of assimilation, of what Mm. that means for this specific Chinese culture in San Francisco, California. And that's the revolutionary part of their story. Everything Mm. else is just going to be romantic comedy. Mm. Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. And when they go into rehearsals, they bring on a director by the name of Gene Kelly. Oh, that that guy. Yeah. That guy (laughs) who had never directed a Broadway stage production before. Mm. And this is kind of where things start going a little uh, a little wonky because Gene, as brilliant as he is, was focusing on really unnecessary details. I shouldn't say unnecessary, very film worthy details Mm, that end up just getting lost on stage. And because of that, was kind of ignoring some of the big problems that did need to be looked at. Mm. Oscar Hammerstein has to go into surgery, so he that takes him out of it. Mm-hmm. Joe Fields also has a surgery, so that takes him him out. Richard Rogers is still dealing with his drinking problem and like falling asleep in the theater during rehearsals, oh, and my. so the stage manager would dim the lights so that the cast wouldn't see that like he was snoring during rehearsals. Wow! So things are getting a little dysfunctional for sure. 
And yet, somehow, the show opens and is a hit. Mm. Huge hit. Yeah. <laughs> Miracles, like yep. I said, live life like everything's a miracle. Even with all of that stacked against them, audiences really like it. Mm. Critics are a little softer on it, and they kind of call it a like a poser musical, mm. that it's trying to reflect a specific culture, but it ultimately wasn't. Mm. But audiences completely disagreed and loved it. Now, I would argue that that's because all of the audiences were white. Mm. Yeah. And when I go back to watch the film version of Flower Drum Song, which happened a little bit after, I really like it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, me too. It's so much fun. It's kind of made for me. Yeah, yeah. And yet, like, also my progressive buttons are all hit because... It's also one of the very few, I think it's probably the only golden age musical where you get to see all of these amazing Asian performers killing it. Mm, yes. You know? I think so it young... still feels a little fresh. Yeah. The, the sun, the dance uh, the, of the sun in the baseball cap. I mean, he, he is just amazing. He's just such an amazing dancer (laughs) you know and the film was choreographed by hermes pan Mm. who did all of fred astaire's choreography like Mm. so to see all of them killing this amazing material is really really inspiring here's the thing even though it was a success it ran for like over 600 performances it doesn't get revived in fact, it becomes one of it becomes like pipe dream. Nobody yeah. really sees it. People know it a little bit from some of the favorite songs, like uh, "I Enjoy Being a Girl," or what else? Um, what else? Do, uh, Don't Grand marry Avenue. me. Yeah. Grand Avenue. Yeah. Yeah. But in general, people forget about Flower Drum Song. Why do you think that is? Um, Opinions. No wrong answers. Opinion. Yeah. You know, I wonder if it is. You know, if there is like a race-based reason, mm-hmm. um, not outwardly, but just it was great if I saw it, you know, but it's not something right. we're going to hold hold and keep just, you know, because it's it's not, I don't see myself up there, you know, sure. if, my, if the audiences are mainly Caucasian, you know, so we're going to hold on to the things that we love, the pretty songs, but mm-hmm. there's no, maybe like investment personally in in the story or identification so the story can sort of just die off and then yeah. artistically people you know people that would create or would revive i think it was it, it was problematic in a lot of ways so they probably just didn't want to touch it um yeah. so you know maybe that that's yeah I, I i totally agree with you i think it's a really great example of how you alienate your product by creating a show celebrating a culture that's actually for a different culture. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's Does so that complicated, make sense? but it's so true. Yeah. Because you can't do Flower Drum Song without an all-Asian cast. Sure. And then, unfortunately, the show isn't really for that community. Yeah. Yes, yes, yeah. I think that is a wall that was being hit, you know? Especially with the original production. If I was coming there... As an Asian audience member, was I really seeing my experience on stage, or was I was I seeing an, another version or through a different lens that I couldn't really relate to? So, you know, that that therein there was no connection. Because I think you know, I think of like Hamilton, you know, our greatest current mm-hmm. musical, right? 
The reason why I think it is so profound is that it hits identification so deeply on so many different levels for all of us, you know? I think yes. he, they just got it. But in the same way, if, if my stage is full of black and brown performers, but it's not um, truly benefiting them as human beings and only using them on the stage, is this production empowering the community or is it just using the community to entertain a mainly white audience, mm -hmm. you know? If I could come up with a thesis statement for the original Flower Drum song, it would be like, illegal immigrants, they're just like us. Mm. Which, for a group of white people, is really important for them to understand. Yeah. But if you truly want the art form to be for everyone and to be a reflection of, like you said, the people who are on stage, you need to think beyond that. Yes. And while Flower Drum Song was revolutionary, they weren't emotionally able to talk the talk and walk the walk. Mm. To, to represent that true experience. Yes. Right? But I think that's where David Henry Huang came in, you know? Hallelujah. Because, because, any, because from that original production, I don't know, and but what... You know, that main creative team was mainly white men, I would assume. Oh, you know? of course. Of course. You know? There there were no brown people or, or people of color or, or any sort of diversity in the in creative teams in 1957. Yeah. Absolutely not. Yeah. So, and therein, I think, lies one of the main, you know, challenges, but also solutions behind what we're talking about, is you got to have... <laughs> Someone that reflects the people that are on the stage and the stories that you're telling, you have to have them on the side of creation. Exactly. I think this is so powerful, Daniel. In 1959, these pioneers in musical theater did not know this lesson. Hmm. And to be perfectly honest, in 2021, we're still trying to learn this lesson. Yes. So it was time to dump out the black ketchup and bring on David Henry Huang. Let's talk about him, because yes. you've not only worked with him in Flower Drum Song, but you worked with him in Soft Power. Yes. <laughs> which is one of my uh, j just truly uh, magical experiences in the theater as an audience mm. member. Mm. I en enjoyed that experience so much. Can you talk to me a little bit about him? Oh, David. Um, in my first acting class um, in, like, seventh grade, you know? <laughs> yeah. It was like It was like a you know, drama class at junior high, or eighth grade, excuse me. The first monologue anyone ever gave me, my teacher, Jody Improta, she gave me FOB, a monologue from David Henry Huang's, you know, first really success, you know, successful play um, that I think he wrote in college called FOB. And it's so funny, you know, Daniel adopted growing up in a Caucasian household. I was like, what, what is this? Like, I, again, I, I had no, no identification with this. Sure, you know? sure. I can um, but I, I was being given it because I was Asian, you know? And they were like, oh, you're the Asian kid in the class. Here's the, here's the Asian monologue, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I only say that to say that David has, even if I wasn't aware, he's been in my acting life for you know, my whole life, basically. And <laughs> so he is just such a hero of mine. And then I, I remember the first time I read him, Butterfly. I was just, that script to me and his skewering of, you know, um, so many things, a lot of what we're talking about, 
it really changed my life reading that script because I was like, wow, I never realized that you could write in this way, you know? Mm. It's sort of how I see Jeremy O'Harris with, like, slave, slave play. You know, he's another one. Sure. He, he, his play did that to me, too, you know? And so getting to work with David, you know, originally in Flower Drum Song and especially in Soft Power, it's just, it, 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 it's such a huge gift. And David is just, um, I mean, he's just, the smartest guy <laughs> I know. He's just so incredibly <laughs> gifted and, but just so kind and so um, unassuming. You, I, I would never guess that this <laughs> very gentle man was writing this sort of a uh, revolutionary theater. He is inventive and pioneering in the same way that I think Rodgers and Hammerstein were, 100%. and which makes him one hundred percent the best choice to bring in on this project. Yes, like you mentioned, his probably biggest success early on was M Butterfly. He won best play for it at the Tony Awards. And that really kind of catapulted him onto a platform and status as a Chinese American playwright. Yep. He also wasn't new to musical theater at this point. He had been a show doctor for Aida and also ended up writing the script for Tarzan. So like he, he knew his way around a musical but the Rodgers and Hammerstein organization brings him on to rework the script. Yeah? yeah. And he says that his goal was to pay homage, uh, to pay homage to homage. Is that how you say it? I think so. <laughs> this is not a test. There are no tests. Right. <laughs> um, to pay homage to both C.Y. Lee, to the mm-hmm. original novel and to, you know, Oscar Hammerstein and Joe Fields who wrote, Uh, the musical version and yet bring it to a new audience. So he creates largely an entirely new script Mm. for this show. I'd love to go through that script with you now. I would love that too. You know, another thing I found in the garage, my, my original script from rehearsals. (laughs) That's awesome. That's so great. (laughs) I download, you can download the script for free if you create a username on Concord Theatricals, they let you peruse any of their scripts okay. so that you'll, you know, do them. So I read the revival script and listened along with your wonderful cast album that you guys oh. made and had such a wonderful time. So I'm excited to go through this with you. Yeah. I will point out a few of the changes that are from the original, but suffice it to say everything has been changed. Yeah. We start with a prologue, which is really, really cool. Mm. The prologue has three parts, right? Can you help me with which what those are? Yeah, so it starts off with Mei Li and the drum, and they're in... Which is literally the flower drum, right? Yes, the flower drum, yeah. There's like a drum with a flower on it. It's usually used for street performers. Mm-hmm. So there's something very humble about it, very simple. Yep, and... In the film, when she, when Maylee and her father get to San Francisco, that's one of the first sort of ends to the community is is she she's gonna play her drums. So, but I mean, this prologue that they create, Robert Longbottom and the team created, was just uh, it's so beautiful, and it's actually on it's on YouTube in a very grainy pre <laughs> pre Instagram um, uh, <laughs> pre iPhone yeah pre iPhone a video, but. Um, so yeah, it starts off with Mei Li in in China, and her father is taken away by the government, the communist government, and you know, we don't really know what happens to him, but 
Meili has to escape. And then her the second part is her travel. The great thing is they had these two, was it two? Like ba folding bamboo sticks that were just made into all these different things. So they bring out these sticks, Mark Oka and Eric Chan, the amazing Mark Oka and Mer Eric Chan <laughs> bring out these sticks, holding them very ceremoniously, and they turn them into a boat. And we mm. all get on the boat, and it was so funny. You'll Dance Captain Jeffrey will appreciate this, <laughs> but uh, there was a part in the music that went da 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 da, da. and the ensemble, we, uh, our direction was lower the boat, get on the boat. <laughs> <laughs> so musically, we could match it. Like, and um, everyone, please do it at the same time. Yes, please. <laughs> and then the third part was arriving to San Francisco and seeing the Golden Gate Bridge. And it was just so beautiful. It's with this big fanfare with the, the orchestra is is booming. The lights come fully up on this beautiful set. And it's the California, USA. And she goes back into, my father says, you know, remembering that her father says that children keep growing, rivers keep flowing too. She doesn't know why. Yep. Somehow. But somehow or other they do. They do, yep. It's such a beautiful song, which opens the show, called A uh, Hundred Million Miracles. Okay. It's kind of put throughout this prologue to describe the harrowing process of people trying to come to America to have a better life. Mm. Uh, in this case, it's a little different from the original because they're not just like stowaways who are arriving at the country illegally. They're actually refugees mm. from escaping from communist China. Yeah. Once she gets here, she knows of one person, Master Wong, who owns a theater, right? Mm -hmm. He and her father knew each other because they performed in Chinese opera together. Yes. And he has come to America and opened up his own theater, which is called The Golden Pearl. He has a son who he forces to perform all of the female roles. And they perform for absolutely no one because no one is interested in going to see traditional Chinese <laughs> opera in San Francisco, 1960. Yep. Uh, so she shows up to the theater and introduces herself. And the son has very much assimilated and distanced himself from these silly traditions of his father. Mm, yes. And the son is second generation, so I think that's a really important... Is he really? So he was born in America? Mm-hmm, yeah. Oh, I don't think I realized that. Yeah. That's cool. And his son's name is Ta. Yeah, Wong Ta, who's played by Jose Lana. Yeah, see? Another great. Yeah. So Ta and Mei Li, they, they start to form this friendship here. Mm-hmm. Because in a way, Mei Li is the bridge between the father and the son. She has all of the hope and ambition of the son, yep. uh, but also the tradition and love of her homeland that his father has and yes. is so desperately trying to hold on to in this ever-changing America. Yes, Ta offers her a job by being a waitress on Friday nights because his father has allowed him to turn this theater into a nightclub one night a week. Yep. And it's actually being incredibly successful, much to the chagrin of the father. Yes. So now Mei Li has a family in the theater again and a job in being a waitress. And so she sings this beautiful In My Own Little Corner <laughs> song <laughs> called yes. I Am Going to Like It Here. This song is really special 
because as phoned in as we like to think that maybe the original production was, it does have some pretty incredible things. In this song, Oscar Hammerstein specifically chose to write it in a Malay verse form called Pantoum, in which the second and fourth lines in the stanza become the third and fifth lines in the next stanza of music. So, for example, I'm going to read these lyrics. She says, I am going to like it here. There is something about the place, an encouraging atmosphere, like a smile on a friendly face. So in that, the second and fourth lines are, there is something about the place, like a smile on a friendly face. Now the next stanza goes, there is something about the place, so caressing and warm it is, like a smile on a friendly face, like a pour in a storm it is. Those then become the third and fifth lines. Mm. That's Isn't so that incredible? Cool. I, I, know, I didn't know that. Fa- yeah, that's really cool. There is this ode to Asian poetry within this very Rodgers and Hammerstein mm. song. Very cool. This reminds me of Pearl Sun. Do you know the the amazing actress I Pearl don't know. Sun? Amazing Broadway actress. She was the standby for Alice Ripley on the um, Next to Normal tour. Oh wow! Um, Go Pearl! Yeah, she's amazing. Pearl, please forgive me if I'm getting any of these facts wrong, but she told the story of her mother arriving to San Francisco, and literally she knew no one, and she just walked around the streets to find a job. You know. Wow. And like, I just, you know, Jeffrey, and when I moved from LA to New York, I was like (laughs) flabbergasted by the culture. You know, I just cannot imagine moving across the The globe, the globe to a different country where I do not speak the, uh, the native language. Don't even speak the language. I don't even speak the language. I do not know any, I don't know anyone and just literally walking the streets looking for a job. And I think, you know, they found a, you know, a customer service job somewhere and but then built a family, built a career to empower her, her beautiful daughter, Pearl, to, you know, star on Broadway and have this amazing life, too. It's just, you wow. know, I, I can't even imagine what that experience is. So I really, and I think of her hearing these lyrics and thinking of Mei Lee because I think you have to be a visionary. You have to be able to see, like, <laughs> I would imagine. You have to see you know, what to could survive. be more than what is. Totally, sure. you know, because these, these lyrics are just so sweet. It is very much my own little corner. And I'm yeah. like, I don't know if, if, if the experience was this sweet, you know, but I do think you have to have this sort of vision to survive, you know? Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. That's awesome. Of course. I hope, Pearl, I hope that's okay if you ever hear this. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So then we meet Miss Linda Lowe, mm. which, come on, who doesn't love Linda Lowe? Yes. Played by the Amer- amazing Sandra Allen, who, if you don't know Sandy, she's incredible. <laughs> Firecracker, what is she like? Oh gosh, Sandy is, well, first of all, she's just this gorgeous, tall, like showgirl, incredible voice. My favorite number to perform in our production was I Enjoy Being a Girl. First of all, my favorite choreography in the show. But my favorite thing was in the reprise of it, and I encourage your listeners to listen to the reprise of I Enjoy Being a Girl from our cast album, but Sandra Allen hits this incredible note at the end. It just like always gives me total chills. And, you know, Sandy's just amazing. She's, she's funny. She's giving, she's an amazing, you know, obviously incredibly talented. And she, she was Linda Lowe to me, you know, she really was just this person, you know, Linda, I think maybe in the movie and the original was a little bit, I, I don't know. I think she still had this very empowered perspective on, 
on life and being a woman, but Sandy just really captured that in, yeah. in Linda. That, that it just wasn't about being dependent on men. This was about having fun and, and being an independent woman and, you know, yes. and owning it. So Linda is the star of the nightclub, right? The, the yep. one day a week when it's a nightclub, she's the star of all of Ta's production numbers. He's also like fallen madly in love with her and she wants really nothing to do with him. Like she, she loves him like a brother, like a friend, but it's not going to happen. And she has an assistant who's like the costumer, the wardrobe supervisor, and his name's Harvard. And I love this gag that his parents trying to like help him succeed in America named him Harvard. Yes. And then he ended up being a costumer in a theater. <laughs> yes. We love Harvard. <laughs> yeah. It's fantastic. These are these are American kids, right? Couldn't yep. be more different to to Maylee. Yeah. And I honestly think that that's the reason why Linda Lowe is as much Linda Lowe as she has been since the get-go mm-hmm. was because they needed something to show, once again, the struggle of assimilation of what do you keep from your own traditions and what do you let go of? Yeah. Um, or do you just completely abandon everything and go full force into, I enjoy being a girl, mm. you know? And that's who Linda Lowe is, and she's very unapologetic about it. She loves being an American girl and uh, sings about it for the next 10 minutes in an amazing production number. <laughs> yes. Now, this was your Broadway debut, right? Yep. How cool. Yes. And you were in the show constantly and then covering a few other roles? Uh, um, Harvard was my only cover. Oh, sweet. Yeah. And how gay did you get to play him, if you don't mind me asking? Oh, gosh. I, I, I honestly blacked out during that when I went on because <laughs> I just like... Don't ask me what, what I did. Why am I saying words on a Broadway stage? What is going on? Um, That's amazing. That's but, the best answer you could have said, yeah, honestly. But the amazing person who played Harvard, Alan Liu, I mean, he just created this incredibly wonderful, eccentric, intelligent, funny character. How cute. Um, yeah. That's it, wonderful. He was really living his full life, so I appreciate that, and I hope that I... <laughs> lived up to I it. stood in well as well. <laughs> yes, I am sure you did. Yeah. I'm sure. But they did. but you know from a creative standpoint, I think they wanted Harvard to be fully realized in that way to show That's that beautiful. like that you know that is being an American kid too, you know. Mm. You know, hopefully. I don't even know if that was an intention, but that's what I took from it, you know. That's wonderful. All right, so next up Ta and Mei Li uh, are connecting a little bit more. And mm-hmm. he's complaining about, you know, this opera that <clears throat> this traditional Chinese opera that his dad loves so much. And Mei Li says, you actually kind of need to give it a try. It's, it's pretty amazing. Mm. And she begins to perform a dance from The Flower Boat Maiden, which is this pretend Chinese opera that they've come up with. And he's so impressed by the way that she moves these huge sleeves in the costume because it takes so much training and, and care to learn the technique of it. And I love a line that, that David, I call him David like he's my friend. <laughs> yeah. um, he's everyone's friend. He is. That he wrote for the two of them. Uh, Ta says, it must have been tough to breathe life into these corny old stories. Mm. And Mei Li replies, my father always said to create something new, we must first love what is old. Mm. I mean... That is literally what this revival of Flower Drum Song was yeah. in two lines, 
right? Yeah, 100%. Ta kind of looking at what was old and, and rolling his eyes and saying, oh, we're so far beyond that. And mm-hmm. Mei Li, who's humble enough to say, actually, if you want to make something even more beautiful, you have to love where it came from. Mm. And I feel that all over this show. Yeah. That kind of respect and connection leads them into playing in air quotes Mm -hmm. the characters from this Chinese opera and they end up kissing. But now you're feeling, are you really just playing characters or are you falling in love? For Mei Li, she's 100% falling for Ta. uh, But Ta is still, you know, hung up on Linda Lowe. And the amazing uh, Chinese opera, I just have to give a shout out to Jamie Guan, who was our... um, Chinese opera consultant and choreographer. And he, he's Ooh. just an incredible uh, artist and man. So, How cool. Is there something specific that you learned from him about the tradition of Chinese opera that you could share? I mean, this is just my visual experience of the very little uh, stuff from our show. and yeah. But it's there's a um, subtlety to it, at least in, this, in the material in our show, that doesn't not exist in musical theater, but um, and an incredible groundedness in the way that it moves, the way that it dances. You know, I love your description mm-hmm. of the the sleeves because I think that's so true. You know, it's almost meditative in the way that like Tai Chi movement mm-hmm. is to me, you know, which I'm sure those, you know, the, the other colors exist in Chinese opera. I'm just, again, talking from the You Are Beautiful stuff that yeah. we did in our show. That's really, that's beautiful. Yeah. Enter Madame Liang, right? Yes. Now, in the original, Madame Liang was actually the sister of Master Wong, mm-hmm. uh, and that has completely changed. Now, Madame Liang is a talent agent who has seen Linda Lowe and wants to sign her. And she's also this like businesswoman who's wanting to make things happen. Yeah. And so she convinces Ta and Wong to completely retransform their theater don't call it the golden pearl because that doesn't even make sense (laughs) (laughs) um turn this thing into a nightclub and call it chop suey why because it's an american dish made with chinese ingredients Mm. and people in this country just eat that stuff up Mm. this is a great example of what this revival has done because originally Chop Suey was supposed to be an earnest number in which these Chinese people are are talking about how crazy it is to be in America. There's this and there's this and there's this and it's all put together in one dish called Chop Suey and that's what it's like to be in America. (laughs) What they've done is repurpose it to be much more about the immigrant experience, right? That we have to repackage we i am not one of that excuse me (laughs) that they need to repackage what their culture is and sell it to people in the country so that they can eat it up Mm. and so that's what they're doing with this theater they're repackaging it and they're going to make this area of chinatown madame leong says she says when the average american thinks of chinatown do you know what they imagine opium dens tong wars female slavery and questionable cuts of meat Mm. And she wants to create a new Chinatown where all of these white people are going to think of it essentially the way that Flower Drum Song, the film, presents Chinatown to be, which is this celebratory place Mm. where you can go and enjoy culture, but it tastes like orange chicken. Mm, mm. 
Ooh, there's so much there, Jeffrey. <laughs> I mean, hearing you s- describe say that line, I'm just like that is what so many people still to in today, you know, today in 2021 think of Chinatown, Asian culture, you know, or or maybe not even think, but that is like the limit of their knowledge, you sure. know, and I exposure think, even. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, that's um it's pr- it's brilliant writing. Yeah. It also doesn't feel preachy to me as a white person. I don't feel bad about myself. I'm no. like, oh, this is a window into what it's like to be in a capitalist world, right? In a capitalist 100%. society where they are 100% in charge of making money. And unfortunately, the people with the money have no idea what their culture is all about. Yeah, yeah. So we have to repurpose, we have to create something understandable and sellable, you know, Yeah. to survive, to make money, you know, and then also to, yeah, from this place of wanting so badly to assimilate, you know. Absolutely, because they want to feel at home. Yeah. And so they have to be, it has to be spoon fed. Yeah. And it is spoon fed in an incredible production number because musical theater is awesome. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> called Grand Avenue. Yes. Like, this is what's so awesome about the art form is that it can be incredibly entertaining and also have room for these really important conversations. Mm, mm. And it's why I love the character of Madame Leong played by the mm. incredible Jody Long, who is just, um, just incredible, like <laughs> badass woman. Um, I remember one night she threw this cast party in her, she had this like amazing, like loft apartment in Chinatown in, in New York. And I was, you know, she's just like, an incredible person. Um, but I love Leung and I love her because she really, in, in a lot of ways, is Madame Leung. She, I mean, talk about empowered. You know, this woman is a yeah. boss. She <laughs> she knows how this thing works and she's going to work it to, you know, make money and in the, in the favor of her community and in the favor of, you know. So I just love her. She just comes in and she just, um, you know, is a, a spitfire in the show. You know, she changes the energy of the show. And um, I just have to mention the incredible costumes d- d- designed by Greg Barnes. Um, you know, Tony he created Nominee. he created this amazing drag you know dragon with the the, the women had these amazing like um, you know scale dragon sh- heels and you know it, oh my gosh <laughs> yeah. that's so sick yeah beautiful stuff so after Grant Avenue Meili and Ta are you know back to connecting but. Now we meet the, another fellow by the name of Chow. And Chow was a refugee with Mei Li. They, they came to San Francisco at the exact same time. He is working for a fortune cookie factory. And so he's delivering fortune cookies to the club. He's nervous at first that Mei Li is like dancing in this club, which means she'd be kind of a stripper. And she's like, absolutely not. That's not my, that's not my style. <laughs> I'm just a waitress. And he's like, oh, phew, would you like to go out with me? And she turns him down because she believes that she and Ta are becoming a thing. Mm. Ta is confusing. <laughs> I think Ta's confused. <laughs> yeah. He is, yeah, he's confused, period. <laughs> when he finds out about Chow, he says, oh, well, you know what? the kind of love you deserve is actually like this. And he sings a song called Sunday, which is mm. kind of like Sunday kind of love. And, and and he's telling her exactly how she should be wooed while doing it himself. And once again, they end up kissing. And he says, I really got to stop doing that. And she says, I couldn't disagree with you more. <laughs> um, 
but he's still not sealing the deal. He's not taking the leap. Mm. So she goes to talk to Linda Lowe about it. And she says, all right, here's what we need you to do. We need to get you ready for tonight. Because I think Linda on some level thinks, all right, May Lee and Ta would be perfect together. That gets him off my back and I can go have my career and do whatever I want. Yep. And so she dresses her up in the latest fashions and then tells her to wait and she'll present her to Ta after the show. Thus starts my favorite number in the show, which was actually my least favorite number in the original show. Yeah. Fantan Fanny. This number is so freaking cool. I can't get over it. Yeah. It's got all of the fan, the RuPaul Drag Race fan whips you'd ever want to see in your life. Yep. And they reorchestrated the dance break. So it sounds like kind of 60s Hawaii Five-O. Yep. I mean, it's obviously meant to be a little tacky and nightclub worthy, but Mm -hmm. it's so freaking fun. And it ends by all of you saying, hope you like, can you do it? Hope you like Mugu Guy Pan. Bow! (laughs) (laughs) Bow, yep. (laughs) It's so silly, but I would die happy if I could just watch that number every night. Yeah. Uh, Amazing orchestrations by David Chase. Legendary David Chase. Legendary David Chase. Also our music director. Music director, and It's funny because they just did a, a few years ago at the Broadway Cares um, Red Bucket Follies, they they did a Flower Drum Song reunion, and they, oh, really? they, they remounted uh, Fantan Fanny for part of the, sh- the, the no number. Way. And um, of a few friends from the cast that were able to do it, I, was, I wasn't able to do it. Um, they said this number, like, because you know, for those things, you put it together in like a week. They're like, "Oh, I, we know this. We know this number. It's easy." Right? They're like, "This number is not easy." This, <laughs> I mean, this is this was so hard. How did we do this? How did we do this? And it was it was so intricate. Those fans. We we had a thing. If you dropped your fan, you had to pay a dollar. There was a fan dollar jar. Ooh. <laughs> um, that's that's great. That was fun. Talk to me about the audience response during your run, because it was unfortunately pretty short. But for the first little bit, you guys had really great crowds. And did you you feel like they enjoyed it? I really do. Yeah, I I think our production was just really beautiful, you know, and I really want to, you know, shout out the Asian community like they they really came out. I mean, people travel, Mm. you know, literally traveled from Asia to come see the show and (gasps) And the community really came out. It's just unfortunate that our community or the community that knows knows about theater or wants to come to theater is not, you know, isn't big enough to support a, a, a full Broadway run, you know? Of course. And so, but I, I do think the people that saw our show loved our show, so. When did you start feeling like maybe it wasn't going to last? So we opened in October. We closed in, I believe, March you know, and we got to make it through the winter. You know, I mean, that is always the challenge in New York, right? We're back to seven brides. Oh, yeah, to- always. <laughs> Not a mistake. Um, you know, I think it was a combination of that. Winter was hard. We were across the street from Hairspray the year it opened. You know, it, we were just the little little Asian show that try- was trying so hard, you know? The and, little um, Asian show that tried. yeah. It was just a combination of those things. You're right, though, because that that was the hairspray year that was moving out. Yep. There were a lot of really loud rock and roll shows, and yours was more nuanced, more quiet. Yeah. And, you know, so much about 
theater and Broadway is about timing, you know? Yeah. Does it fit in the season? Is it the, you know, how is it going to be seen? How is it going to be received? You know? Lots of revivals that year too. You had Nine with Antonio Banderas. You had Mm. Gypsy with Bernadette Peters. I always heard that the, the production in LA, the Mark Taper production was really beautiful. You know, it was in that uh, more intimate theater, the thrust mm-hmm. stage, you know, that everyone that was a part of that production just says that, that they really got it in a way that even our, you know, the New York production was just different, you know? And I think maybe if Flower Drum Song was in Circle in the Square or in a different space, you know? Sure. Because there yeah. was a lot of talk of, you know, when it moved to New York, it having to assimilate. The production having to Broadway eyes and, 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 and live up to all these sort of you know, standards. Yeah. And I think, although it was beautiful, I think maybe it lost some of its, some of that original magic and charm trying yeah. to be, trying A to big sell. competitive yeah. Broadway show. Yeah. All right. So after Fantan Fanny, it's time to introduce the newly made over Mei Li to Ta. And Ta doesn't care. Yep. <laughs> Poor Mei Li. Poor Mei Li. I mean, that's kind of mean. It's not that he doesn't care. It's that he always liked who she was. And he's kind of mad at Linda Lowe for trying to dress her up in her old dresses in order to get rid of him. Yeah. Anyway, the first act ends with this, what's going to happen now? <laughs> because Meili leaves, uh, obviously, you know, devastated. We come back into the second act and... Master Wong has not only embraced this new nightclub that has now changed its name to Club Chop Suey, (laughs) but he has fully changed his persona and adopted this Asian Uncle Sam type thing called Uncle Sammy Fong. Mm. This is actually really kind of funny because originally this was the one character that was played by a white guy Mm -hmm. in the original production. And it was because it was supposed to be this, you know, Will Parker, funny Rogers and Hammerstein side character. And so mm. they got a, a, a white dude who was funny and to, to play it. And so now that character is completely gone, but they used his name to be the new persona of Master Wong in order to please all of the white patrons to his nightclub. That's that's pretty brilliant and yeah. also kind of shady at the yeah. same time. <laughs> Very shady. <laughs> so Sammy Fong opens the second act with a, a song called Gliding Through My Memory, which is a super old-fashioned Follies-type song in which he's introducing the loves of his life from all over the world and their showgirls. I don't know. I really like the number. I think it's smart. Oh, I love that number, yeah. I was Miss Holland. <laughs> You were not. <laughs> yes. So there, there were two women short of the countries. So myself and Eric Chan were dubbed the two women that would come in with Greg Barnes uh, designed this amazing hat that swooped my face so you couldn't see my face. <laughs> but I had this huge windmill butt piece and this corset. And that was also, I, I want to say like a 16 second quick change. Like I was in full, uh, I think I think stri- maybe street streetwear. And then I ran off and I had like a really, really quick full change into full drag. (laughs) That's freaking awesome. You were in this number (laughs) cinched with a windmill waist. Yeah, I wish I had the, well, you can't see pictures, but in the souvenir program, I'm fully, 
<laughs> I'm fully in the Supergirl program as Miss Hollis. Okay, we got to track down a photo of that so we can put it in the Instagram post because yeah. that's yeah. fantan fanny fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Master Wong has become a bit of a nightmare with this new uh, this new persona. He's taken over the nightclub. Yeah. All of the numbers are now about him, and Linda is done. She has decided that she's going to pack up and go to Los Angeles. And everybody is telling Todd that he needs to find Mei Li. He's been trying, but he still can't. That's when Chin, who is the brother of Master Wong, Mm -hmm. sits Todd down and has a talk with him and says, you need to find her. Mm -hmm. And he sings a lovely song called My Best Love. Hi, this is Jose Lana, and um, my best memory of Alvin Ng is during our revival of Flower Drum Song, where I was lucky enough every night to have Alvin sing to me his big song, uh, My Best Love. He led the way for us Asian-American leading men on Broadway, and um, I will forever miss him. There was always laughter surrounding Alvin, and I remember for my baby shower, Um, He thought I was having a girl, and I forgot what he got me, but he found out I was having a boy. So he exchanged them, and when I opened the gift, it was a pair of silver shoes. Um, So we all laughed politely, and Jose Lana said, that's for when my kid goes to the gay bars, which made us all crack up even more. One of the notes we always got was, Don't talk to Alvin before he goes on stage because he would always engage with you so much. And one time he might have missed his entrance, but we always laugh about that because he's always such a professional and he was so engaging with anyone he came across. This is Telly Leung. And what I will remember about my dear friend Alvin Ng, besides his big heart, his love of food and his wicked sense of humor is that glorious tenor voice. At 89 years old, his voice was still clear as a bell. I loved sharing the stage with him in Pacific Overture, singing Someone in a Tree. And of course, that first time I fell in love with his voice, hearing My Best Love in Flower Drum Song. All that was true for me shall be true for you. You are romantic. I was romantic too. Ta follows the advice of Chin and also gets a little hint from him that she is now working at the fortune cookie factory where Chow is as well. Yes. And so he goes to see them. Chow has convinced Mei Li to leave the United States and go to Hong Kong uh, because it's, you know, not exactly China at this point, and yet a little bit closer to their traditions, which is a really fascinating conversation about, you know, immigrants coming to the United States with all of these skills and end up just being janitors, you know, mm, or mm. working in a cookie factory, even though they were physicians back a in their home country. Yeah. And so they <clears throat> they feel kind of wasted and, and want to leave. 
Ta comes in and tries to convince her otherwise. And she says no, that she's going to be leaving with Chao. Cut to Madame Liang and Master Wang now going to dinner because they're celebrating the great success of their nightclub. And he learns that Madame Liang was actually once a starlet. Mm. I got to read this. It's hilarious. (laughs) Uh, She says, I was once a starlet down in Hollywood. They called me the queen of the oriental crowd scenes. Whenever a Japanese village got bombed, that was me screaming. But glory like that can't last. One day your looks fade, you gain a few pounds, some new girl comes along who can shriek a little louder, and you're left bitter, barely educated, with no useful skills. What could I do? I became an agent. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> This character is fantastic. Yeah. So, so funny. As they're sharing these things about each other, they also realize that they've both been married Mm. before. Uh, I think Madame Leong's been married like four times. And they're like, well, maybe we should get married to each other. But then they realize that's an absolutely terrible idea and start into this song called Don't Marry Me, Mm. which is a really fun Rogers and Hammerstein number yep. uh, that they actually wrote in two hours during like previews because the one part of the show wasn't working and they needed to write a new song for a new actor who came in. And so they like went to the ladies restroom area, which had a piano in it <laughs> and came back two hours later with Don't Marry Me. Wow. Isn't that funny how those things get in and stay? Yeah. You know? <laughs> After Ta has been rejected by Mei Li, he goes back to Linda Lowe, mm. who is preparing now to go to Los Angeles, and says, uh, take me with you. We can have a duo act like uh, Roxy Hartville McKelly and uh, take the city by storm. And she says, no, I'm, I'm doing this by myself. And they finally have this very real conversation about why Linda won't date him. Mm. And he says... Is it because you only date white guys? Mm. You know, she doesn't say anything. And and he says, uh, well, why? Why do you only do that? And she says, how come? For the same reason you always hated doing Chinese opera. We all want to be Americans. And then she says, deep down, you and I are too much alike. Maybe that's our problem. Neither one of us wants to love someone who reminds us too much of ourselves. Ooh. Wow. So I, I I was on that page right when you started reading it and I, I totally had forgotten about this scene and it just hits so differently today than it did 20 years ago. Bravo to David. You know, like, I, I know personally, I, I hope I have and I feel, feel like as a society and in theater, we, we've, we're evolving to a different place. We're like returning to, no, I want to be like myself. I want to find myself. I want to love myself. I want to love people that look like me. I want to understand people that look like me. You know, whereas... Enough of the self-loathing, please. Yeah. Whereas, you know, in the 50s, 60s especially, there was this just such a great need to assimilate. You know, my partner's Mexican-American. His parents would tell him, no, do not speak Spanish. We are not. We're American, you know. Mm -hmm. And like that sort of robbing of self-culture, but it wasn't, it was from a place of wanting to belong, you know? of course. And so I I just think, you know, that's really, it's really powerful to read this, you know? Well done, David. He's sort of good. (laughs) Yeah, he's okay. 
<laughs> that genius. <laughs> All right, so now we're at the docks, yep. which is where Meili and Chow are going to leave to go to Hong Kong. And Meili is, of course, devastated still because of uh, losing Ta and I guess losing herself in Ta. And she sings, honestly, one of Rodgers and Hammerstein's greatest songs, mm. Love Look Away. Mm. Now, this song was originally in the first act, and it was for a third romantic character. There there used to be three women who Ta was kind of weaving in and out of. And this third character was an unrequited love that really never had a chance. And so she sang Love Look Away and then disappeared from the show. Mm. And in the original novel, that character commits suicide, but they, of course, didn't want to do that mm. because romantic musical comedy. And so she just disappeared from the story instead, which was perhaps even more confusing. So now uh, that character was eliminated, and the song was actually given to Mei Li, who is our heroine and deserves to have this huge emotional moment mm. and that is where all of those instagram clips came from donnie <laughs> thanks donnie so, <laughs> so at the end of this huge emotional arc she is turning her back to her love and her dream of being in the country and even her flower drum which she had chow sell to a local thrift shop in order to pay for their tickets to go to Hong Kong. Mm. Right before they're about to to board the boat, Ta comes to find her and has her drum that he managed to find at said shop as an offering to say, I know what is most important to you, and please believe me when I say you are most important to me. And so she decides to stay. The next thing that we see is Ta and Mei Li back in the Chinese opera. They get married, and then we have this like really fun wedding procession in which we hear the dot dot dots of all of the different characters mm -hmm. about what they went on to do. Oh, uh, I have it right here. Harvard says, My parents are still mad at me for not going to some fancy college, but with the money I made here, I bought my mother a watch which will at least help take some pressure off my little brother, the one they named Rolex. Any, <laughs> anyway, when Madame Leung learned about the wedding, she... Let's actually just read this. Come yeah. on, David Henry. He did amazing. Yes. Um, so she says she absolutely refused to attend. After all, Ta had quit the club and was performing in Portsmouth Square with Mei Li for donations. Mm. But ever since Sammy and I got back from our honeymoon, what? They got married? <laughs> it's like I can't even hold a grudge anymore. One afternoon, and then Wong says, I went to see their show, which used the traditions of my old opera days to tell new stories of life in America. Their work reminded me of when I was young and still believed in impossible things. So I decided that once a week, I would allow Ta and Mei Li to perform a special program here, which we would call Opera Night. So sweet. Mm. Linda says, I just landed my first movie role. I play this <laughs> peasant girl in the Korean War, and when my village gets bombed, I scream. <laughs> so things haven't changed. Yeah, no. <laughs> still to the, yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Then Mei Li says, as I begin my new life, I give thanks to all those who came before me, mm. my father, my mother, 
and their ancestors before them, whose legacy was passed down to me the day I was born. And then when she says, the day I was born, she she breaks the fourth wall and becomes Leas Longa and says, um, oh. I think I want to say Quezon City or Manila, Manila, Philippines. And then that began us all breaking the fourth wall and, and becoming ourselves and saying where we were, we were born. And I mean, it was just such a beautiful moment that David and the team created and, um, oh and gave gosh, us. Oh my gosh, it's you know? so moving. <clears throat> I was sitting there reading this and listening to the score and just like dripping because of COVID. <laughs> yeah. So it's just like, oh, it's, it's really, really touching. Yeah. And so, like you said at the beginning of the episode, you were born in Seoul, Korea. Yep. You had cast members born in Canada, uh, California, New York, Japan, Long Island, Hawaii, Hong Kong. Ended with Eric Chen saying, Hong Kong. <laughs> it's incredible. Yeah. And a little reprise of A Hundred Million Miracles Are Happening Every Day. Yep. It's such a good show. It's a beautiful show. It really is. I have grown a whole new respect for this freaking thing. And I'm telling anybody out there who has a regional theater and you want to walk the walk and talk the talk of what we've been saying in terms of diversity in theater, but are also worried about not giving your older patrons Rodgers and Hammerstein. Boom. Here it is. Yeah. Yeah. You're going to have to find a lot of actors of Asian descent, but you can do it and and do it because it's incredible. Yes. And and we're out there. I mean, there. That's the thing is, you know, when this original production was happening, when these original productions of the King and I, there weren't as many Asian and Asian American actors out there as there are today. I mean, you know, we're there. And I, my my dream for the show always, whenever I go to San Francisco, which I love San Francisco, it's one of my favorite places. And I'm in Chinatown. I was like, it would be so cool to uh, get, you know, one of these buildings. Or I even walked by an old, what looked like an old theater that was closed down. Wouldn't it be so cool to open that theater and have like a a sitting production of Flower Drum Song in like a theater, you know, sort of like an immersive, like Studio 54 type, you know, in in a club, you know, I just think that would be such a cool thing to do. Get some bomb food during intermission. Yep. That's a dream. That's a worthy dream. Yeah. Daniel, thank you so much for doing this with me. Oh, Jeffrey, thank you. This is really special. This gift. is awesome. Yeah. I can't amazing. wait. I've never seen the show. I knew, I want to see it now. I've seen yeah. the movie, but first regional theater to do this gets my ticket. Yeah. I'm saying it here. Do it. Do it. <laughs> As always, if you have recommendations for shows you'd like us to cover on A Musical Theater Podcast, you can always email me at amusicalpodcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at A Musical Podcast. And if you want to support the show, the best thing you can do is write us a nice review. If you want to support us even more for $1 a month, you can subscribe to Patreon exclamation point where you will get exclusive content not available on the regular feed. Hey, Daniel, how can we follow you and everything you're up to? So my Instagram is Daniel May Official, and that's probably the best way to get me. I'm always on there <laughs> posting stuff. Um, Fantastic. Yeah. But thank you so much for today. Really special. Thank you. Yeah. And everybody out there, uh, don't give up hope because what does it say? A miracle. Oh, mi- a hundred million miracles are happening every day. Amen. I was going to say impossible things are happening every day. I'm like, no, that's another Rodgers and Hammerstein musical.
Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.